Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CL163, Reactions to Disaster, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 273, September the 1st, 1992. This evening... Otto Scott, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and myself will be discussing reactions to disaster. I think this is a very important subject because I believe this is going to be a decade of disasters, of world upheavals, of problems in the economic and monetary sphere, in the spheres of government, of weather, of a, a variety of things, including health, epidemics, and the sort. So we had better think over the question of reactions to disaster, and I think we are singularly unprepared. We have since World War II, and most of the people living have been born since then, had an unusually comfortable existence. There have been fewer deaths through diseases and none of the things that used to mark life in earlier years. During the war, wonder drugs were discovered. It doesn't seem possible now to recall the fact that when I started school, it was not unusual for classmates to become seriously ill and to die. After all, appendicitis was a very serious matter in those days. One of my good friends in grade school died of a ruptured appendix. There were no wonder drugs to take care of things and a simple in a cut on a finger killed President Coolidge's son through blood poisoning. Things like that happened. Childhood ailments, which are now being pushed back or have been since World War II and are now returning, eliminated a great many deaths so that the death of children is not as common now as it once was. I recall having a funeral a few years back of a woman who was in her 80s. She had children and grandchildren and a few great-grandchildren. Both she and her husband had been orphaned when they were about 10 years old. They had been brought up by relatives. And as a result, in that particular family, there had not been a funeral for between 60 and 70 years. And everyone was devastated. I have never had a funeral in which there was no more sobbing and uh, devastation in that particular funeral because death was a rarity to all of them. It had never come close to them before. I'm afraid we are in a similar predicament nowadays in that major disasters that have taken a major uh, toll on human life have not been commonplace for the generation born since World War II. So, the question is, will they be able to take the troubles that are coming? I read only today that as a result of Hurricane Andrew, a great many people, how many the article didn't pretend to say, are disoriented and are having problems. 
Well, with that general introduction, Otto, would you like to make a general statement? General and as specific as you want, and as long. Oh, thank you. Well, the, the, uh, the press does not help uh, when we have natural disasters or catastrophes or anything else, for that matter, in the United States. I don't know how long they're going to shove microphones into people's faces and ask them how they feel when something terrible has happened to them. Nor does the press explain the general context uh, in which the event occurs. It doesn't, for instance, on the TV screen, they don't put up a map. They don't tell you where the towns and the areas are involved. And they don't describe the matter in overall terms. Uh, as far as the people's reaction is concerned, it's quite a contrast between hurricane survivors of, of, uh, that I knew years ago <coughs> and what I hear on the, on the screen today. First of all, the idea of governmental help did not arise. They uh, assumed that it was a natural catastrophe, which in the old days at least relieved the insurance company, because it was an act of God, and insurance companies didn't pay for acts of God. And people picked up and started their life over again. I was in a hurricane in North Carolina in a lumber camp, and I remember we had semi-barracks and uh, it was all men. There was a lot of drinking when the hurricane was approaching and when it hit. Uh, there was no point in leaving because you had only trucks to go over corduroy roads and they were pretty bumpy even when things were good. So we uh, set it out. I remember the next day there was a, a little rise in the ground that was covered with snakes that had uh, gotten up there more or less. I don't know why, and quite a good number of them. And it was not a traumatic experience in my life. I believe it's the first time I've mentioned it since it occurred, and it occurred a long time ago. I've been in hurricanes at sea where it's fairly easy. All you have to do is to uh, head the bow into the waves and ride it out. But you have seen men washed overboard. Yes, I saw men washed overboard. And also, if you got into a trough, if you got in between the waves, you'd be turned over. So it, it had its, uh, its, its, its moment of interest, you might say. It, <laughs> it kept you awake. You didn't go to sleep out of boredom. But on the other hand, you didn't fly to pieces either. The... Uh, most recent reaction seems to be a litany of complaints that the governmental assistance wasn't quick enough. Now, Florida is not a cold place. It's, it's a warm climate in southern Florida and southern Louisiana. Nobody was going to freeze to death down there. Uh, you might have to go a couple of days without something to eat, and I, I've gone several days without eating uh, on voluntary fast on occasion, and sometimes when I was very young, involuntarily. <clears throat> I can vouch for the fact that it's not painful to go without food. Uh, and I, I do feel sorry for the 200,000 homeless families down there I think I feel most sympathetic and, and, and uh, toward them because of their apparent helplessness. I'm, I'm very surprised at the lack of inner resources. And I think this may be attributed to their upbringing in that they've been told that the world is essentially a safe place, and if it's not a safe place, it's the duty of the government to make it a safe place. I'm not surprised that they blame the president for not getting enough assistance soon enough. When Managua went down uh, as a result of an earthquake, nobody knows how many thousands of people lost their lives within a 12-minute period. The entire 
city collapsed, the entire city. And a lot of aid was sent down. I can vouch for the fact that American aid is not always as good as it sounds. People get rid of a lot of trash and send it as part of the aid. Somoza did the best he could, but the Nicaraguans blamed him for the catastrophe in much the same sense that sometimes subliminally a woman is apt to blame her husband when there's a family tragedy. That if the captain of the ship was really a good man, this wouldn't have happened to the vessel. And I think we're seeing some of that in the hurricane reaction. Douglas? Well, what always uh, uh, disappoints me is the what I call the professional carpetbaggers who rush in to, to uh, take advantage of a natural disaster to uh, uh, further their own uh, agendas. The uh, recent fires that we had here in Northern California uh, produced a number of people who ran out, for instance, and wanted to provide uh, uh, in the field, on the spot, mental health services for those people who <laughs> were unable to sleep well uh, or uh, felt some anxiety or uh, changes in their patterns of behavior. Uh, it's almost pathetic that uh, these so-called health, what they used to call themselves practitioners, but apparently they felt that that uh, didn't sufficiently exalt their position, so they changed the term to professionals, health care professionals. And uh, because I've had doctors tell me that uh, uh, when I complained about uh, they're not being able to come up with a diagnosis, much less a cure, uh, they would tell me, look, uh, the sign over the front door says I'm a physician, not a magician, and we practice medicine here. So they can always beg off when they get in a corner, but it's uh, difficult for them to accept responsibility when they uh, can't do what they uh, try to convince people that they're capable of. But the, the fire uh, uh, produced uh, our local mental health services here in this county where the Old Gulch fire took place. Uh, it's it's pathetic. They they're like uh, uh, people who uh, are desperate to make their services available. They're desperate because they want to be needed. It seems to. It's like the uh, you know, getting the genie out of the lamp. Uh, they want to be uh, uh, made to feel indispensable. And immediately after any kind of a uh, uh, disaster, uh, they run out and uh, try to find clients. And uh, rather than letting people uh, go about their business of healing their own lives, the other thing that Otto touched on was the press seems to milk the disasters for ratings because I've noticed a logical pres uh, progression in the way they cover these disasters. First they start out by using it, as Otto pointed out, to attack the government. <coughs> the government's not doing enough, it's not doing it fast enough, it didn't plan for this, well how do you plan for a hurricane? Uh, it's, it's almost as if they want uh, the government to uh, uh, have uh, disaster uh, uh, plans the same as you'd have in military uh, planning. Uh, any, for any contingency. And then after they've, they've milked that for a few days, then they move into uh, uh, goading insurance companies. I've noticed that uh, they will highlight those insurance companies get there first, and then they'll, by implication, say that any other insurance company is not doing their job because they're not up there shoving money at people uh, on any kind of a claim. And uh, then when that's over with, or they feel they've milked that enough uh, by attacking big business, then they will uh, begin to spotlight the normal reaction of people is that they want to survive. 
So then they will pick out instances of uh, self-help uh, among the self-reliant victims who simply want the government to get out of the way so that they can <laughs> rebuild their house. And uh, as we saw with the Oakland fire, government got very much in the way. And uh, there's large areas of the Oakland Hills which are not rebuilt yet because they've rewritten the building codes, they've thwarted the contractors, they've thwarted the people who own the property. In cases, in some cases, to the point of desperation where the people have sold the property, they gave up after pouring thousands of dollars into building permits and, and uh, environmental uh, impact reports and the rest of it, they just finally gave up and abandoned the property. What, and you almost think that Oakland wanted them to because I heard one um, individual express the uh, thought that uh, uh, Oakland would try to intentionally uh, keep people from rebuilding in that very exclusive, expensive uh, area so that they could uh, put in low-cost housing instead. So uh, there's a, and then of course the press routinely ignores any Christian attempts to alleviate suffering. You don't see anything, any of the nuts and bolts of the Salvation Army going out and helping people that I haven't seen, or any churches or uh, uh, the bringing in of any help from the outside. And there's been done by the hundreds. I mean, there's been hundreds of churches that have loaded up goods and rented trucks or borrowed trucks and appalled stuff in there. And none of that is highlighted by the press. So they seem to be milking it for ratings and furthering their own agenda in the process. Well, uh, we've kind of talked about people's reaction to disaster after and, and the media's reaction. Something I've noticed is during a disaster, most people behave quite well. Otto's mentioned that in the wartime, most people are physically courageous, and yes. they, they do what's expected of them. Sure. <coughs> uh, during the recent fires, uh, people were very cooperative. They were willing to help people, neighbors that they'd never spoken to before, and people generally behave quite well. And uh, some of them very courageously defending other people's homes. Some of them risked their own lives. Uh, some private contractors who had water trucks went up to friends' homes and saved the homes of people they knew because mm. they parked their water truck uh, there and they made water available to firefighters. Uh, it's been said many times that one of the reasons that we, we, we don't have community because people don't believe the same things, they don't share the same ideas, so they don't have much in common. You can talk with them about the weather and about sports, about what's in the scandal sheet, but if you get into any substantive uh, discussion with them, uh, you start alienating people. In a disaster, people have something in common, and it very often brings out the best in as far as the victims go and the people who are evacuated. Sometimes the people you see on TV waiting for handouts are not the best example of, of the people affected by a disaster. Uh, many of the people who are evacuated from an area do not go to evacuation centers. They'll, friends, church members take care of them. And so the people wait who are in evacuation centers, sometimes they don't know anybody locally, but sometimes uh, that doesn't represent the whole picture. Also, something I've noticed when I've been on fire lines and camera crews have come around, many of the firefighters will disappear. <laughs> they don't want to be interviewed and they don't want to have anything to do. Uh, other people think it's exciting and they want to be interviewed. So they'll cluster towards the uh, camera crews. So what you see on TV is not at all uh, representative necessarily of, uh, of emergency personnel or the victims. That's good to hear. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. And you're a firefighter, so you ought to know. Well, the fact of community help, which you mentioned, Mark, 
was very clear, as you pointed out, in the recent fire here in this county. About a third of the people in the county were homeless, 14,000. Only a few hundred, I believe, were in uh, the uh, centers they established in the two high school gymnasiums, I believe. Most were with friends and were taken in by friends or relatives or sometimes people who only knew them casually. So the amount of uh, help given uh, by people in such a time uh, is dramatic. Of course, as you said, disaster will often bring out the best in people as well as the worst. You have the prevalence of looters in times of disasters. Uh, we don't have that problem um, up here in the mountains, but a disaster brings people together in a common cause. During a time of war, a great many evil things happen, but there is also a greater unity and a helpfulness among people, and there are fewer mental breakdowns and mental problems during a wartime because everyone feels caught up in a cause bigger than himself, and that has a powerful impact. However, there is another aspect, not a particularly good one. I've encountered this, and uh, uh, people who have worked in disasters have told me about this. One of the most common remarks of people is, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this happened. I wonder about that. After all, Many of them uh, show in their persons the effect of the disaster and the catastrophe. Are we so acclimatized to disasters and catastrophes in a make-believe world of films and of television? Now, I'm asking the question, and I think it would be good if we all... Uh, expressed ourselves in that. But increasingly, television and the films have been upping. I don't see much, but the little snatches I see occasionally indicate a heightening of horror, of disaster, of everything, so that it's been estimated how many thousands of murders a child sees in a year on television, how many rapes, how many cases of arson, how many accidents, and so on, so that we get a daily diet of horrors if we are tuned into the world of entertainment. Does this create a sense of unreality? Does it make it hard for people to see these things in the real world when they're so used to it as a part of entertainment? Now, why don't you uh, comment on that, Otto? Well, at the end of World War II, I was in uh, London reading the London Times, and I recall an article, I wish I had saved it, was an article about the Germans, and it traced some of their problems back to the German film industry, which, as you know, in the early 20s and on, began to show all kinds of sadistic movies. Uh, there was Nosferatu, I call the film about Dracula, there was Dr. Caligari's Cabinet, and so forth. And the article went on to say that these films would open up, let's say, in a, a tree-lined suburban street with a man, perfectly well-dressed man, walking down the street. And the only hint you would have of any problem would be somewhat eerie music 
and then suddenly uh, a violent act would occur. And this was presented in the German film so often as to plant the idea that violence was a part of everyday life. And, and that violence, in fact, was normal, that the abnormal was normal. And as you know, as I know, the Weimar Republic, which was uh, headed by socialists, did an awful lot to foster the idea that the abnormal is normal, much as is going on today, where the abnormal sexual behavior is called an alternate lifestyle, another version of normality. And our films and our television are sodden with sadism. Now, I think this has, uh, this has made people actually more callous, not more sensitive, mm -hmm. and uh, more accustomed to the idea of violence than uh, repelled by it. I think the business of I can't believe this happened is just a cliché. Like uh, a fellow, I, you, you tell a fellow something and he says, you're kidding. That always annoys me. I say, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those meaningless phrases. <laughs> well, you mentioned, uh, you know, TV and film. And I think if we take a look at the period of time that we're in where television has become so... Uh, overpowering in our culture uh, and film now has gone into a new dimension it is no longer uh, a medium of entertainment it has become a medium of indoctrination of propaganda and uh, I think that people are uh, in emotional overload intellectual if you can call it that but at least sensory and emotional overload and I think it's people's natural reaction to start tuning out. Mm -hmm. uh, they shut out of their lives what they either don't understand or are unable to cope with. So that when a natural disaster does occur, it jars them back to reality. And that, you know, that's the reason they can't believe it, because the majority of the time they're living in a dream world. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a very important point, Douglas. I do believe that because so much of their life is taken up by fiction, films and uh, television, uh, the real world uh, is no longer real to them. The importance they attach uh, to uh, film personalities and entertainment personalities is amazing to me. The adulation, for example, going back some years of the Beatles and of today of the rock stars, the readiness to believe that Elvis Presley is alive, the fact that there are perhaps a dozen or so Elvis Presley imitators making a very fat living going around impersonating him. Well, it's part of the false god syndrome. People are looking for something that they can either look up to or believe in, and if they have no faith, they will attach to anything. It's just like we were talking about earlier. Local shop that sells uh, mineral specimens also sells crystals to people who are uh, involved in a, a new age uh, movement. Uh, it's all part of the same thing. They're just people that who have no faith, who will attach themselves to anybody or anything. They'll even stare into a rock for whatever, but that doesn't. I mean, there are people in the Bay Area right now that are in emotional stress and will probably have to go pay money to see a shrink because Jose Canseco got traded to the Astros. I mean, their whole life is evolves around their their baseball heroes or their Elvis uh, icon or whatever it is that they attach themselves to. I'm afraid you're right, Douglas. The adulation of sports and entertainment figures is really startling, and uh, it is a substitute for reality for a great many people, and they are not happy when reality 
forces them to look at it. Well, I don't know about that. I think a lot of the sports chatter is because of this theory that uh, watching sports is somehow virile. Uh, sitting on your buttocks watching sports never <laughs> struck me as being particularly manly, but I'm, I'm very strange in that respect. I think it's just a, a means of social chat more than anything else. Uh, please turn your take over at well, this Before time. we do that, I want to remind our listeners that uh, the noises we hear uh, uh, right now are um, from the crickets. Yes. It's going crazy outside, so we might hear cricket noises during these tapings, and um, the uh, clock might be bonging off, so bear with us. way of comment before you begin, Otto, uh, Bob referred to the sound of the crickets. I want you all to realize you're getting these sounds for free because during the intermission, uh, one of the men made a comment that people actually buy recordings of country sounds. So that's a bonus. No extra charge for the sound of the crickets. Okay, Otto. Well, when we were talking about disaster and personal experiences, I forgot to mention, and Mark mentioned how, and, and also you, Doug, how many people help their neighbors. I forgot to add that you took in my dog. <laughs> <laughs> we had two over at our place. Well, how did Max enjoy it? <laughs> well, he didn't say, uh, but I hear by indirect sources that he did a lot of whining while he was over there. <laughs> Wanted to be fed every half hour and walked every 15 minutes. <laughs> you spoiled that. It's just like when you take your kid to grandma's house, you know, the kid takes advantage. <laughs> Mark, you wanted to say something. Oh, well, as regards natural disasters, I think one of the troubles reasons people have trouble dealing with a major national a natural disaster like a hurricane that devastates an entire region or a forest fire that burns thousands and thousands of acres is because they've been told throughout their schooling that nature is basically God and that nature is what created them and they're here because of natural processes and that nature is supposed to be getting better and better. When they see nature turn on itself, uh, they think this isn't supposed to happen. Uh, and of course that's the whole idea behind environmentalism, that if you meet, leave nature to itself, nature is going to get better and better. It's the idea behind our, net, um, our wilderness areas, is that the best thing we can do for our forests is to leave them completely alone and, and let man keep his hands off. Actually, that's not the best way. Our best forests are the ones that have genetically developed trees that are superior and produce better wood, grow faster and straighter. And if you believe in, in the, the, the biblical account, nature has fallen and nature is self-destructive and that nature is going downhill. And people don't like to see that because it's not what they've been told. That's an important point, Mark. The European Enlightenment and the Age of Reason began after 1660. It received a death blow in 1750 when the Lisbon earthquake took place. And no one knows to this day how many were buried under the rubble. They know that at least 10,000 died in that earthquake. It shattered the belief in nature as benevolent, uh, in reason as a governing natural force in the world, in everything in every way getting better and better every day. And the Lisbon earthquake was a shattering thing for the humanists of that day. Uh, more than one book has been written about the impact of the Lisbon earthquake on the Enlightenment. It led to the rise of Romanticism and a belief in a nature that was wild, unreasonable, and unknown. And 
we don't uh, tend to show interest in the grim side of romanticism of which the Marquis de Sade was the governing force, in which evil is a triumphant and dominating force in the natural world. All that came about with the Lisbon earthquake. Well, today with the environmental movement, we have been going back to a faith, as Mark indicated, in a benevolent world of nature. And we're beginning to get disasters. Volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. There were tornadoes, by the way, this past week in uh, southern New York over a wide area. Not common there. And people are not used to thinking of nature in such a uh, malevolent uh, form. Well, that depends on their life experience. People who are <coughs> involved in basic uh, activities, policemen, uh, clergymen, should be well acquainted with disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, experienced reporters in my day, uh, I must say the reporters that I see in action now don't seem to have ever had any experience at all. But uh, I, both as a seaman and as a uh, wandering uh, blue-collar worker in my early youth and uh, as a crime reporter, and even before that, as a child, I mean, my, my grandparents lived in the country, and I used to pick up garter snakes on the way to school, put them in my pocket. For the then, teacher? Yeah, no, just to scare the girls. And, <laughs> and uh, there were, there was all kinds of things. There were mosquitoes and this and that, poisonous snakes. I mean, anyone who grows up has to grow up in a very protected environment not to know that this is a terrible world in many respects. I remember we had well water at a time when goiters were common, when uh, tapeworms were common. Uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, when death was no stranger, I saw an elderly man die when I was a very young boy, and... Uh, Nobody paid any attention to me when I went to tell them, so I just went home and waited for the rest of them to find it on their own. And uh, recognize death immediately. You don't have to be told that it's death. You see it. It's an instinctual recognition. Uh, <clears throat> the whole idea that we have to be protected from reality and surrounded by fantasy that the government has to make us secure, that we have to have therapists to enable us to handle our grief, is a, uh, a real intrusion. It's a real insult to the human race that's being conducted by poorly educated and arrogant social scientists who are causing, I think, a great deal of problems. I, I hear now that Incest apparently is as common as a common cold. Well, uh, that's pretty weird to discover after all these centuries of civilization. Well, go ahead, Douglas. One of the incongruities uh, is that uh, people seem now to accept pretty much as normal, as long as it happens to somebody else, drive-by shootings, mm -hmm. uh, crime of all kinds. Uh, and they know that the government can't control it. It's obviously getting worse, yet they feel that the government should have control over such things as hurricanes and forest fires. Uh, the other thing that, uh, regarding the fallibility of all-powerful government is that uh, on the radio today I heard that the, uh, the old antebellum mansions who were built by craftsmen with no government building code were not touched. They are all standing. All of the buildings that were built by the government building code were destroyed. Very uh, interesting. I read this evening, there was something on that, ABC News, I believe, and almost all the modern buildings went uh, right away. The older buildings that were more than 20 years old survived. And yet the building codes are more severe than before. So they showed a, 
a building inspector looking at one of the ruins and he said there was supposed to be metal struts protecting the roof to the side walls and he pointed out three and then the rest of the building didn't have any so the rest of the roof went uh, went uh, a fine that's called corrupt building inspectors that's corrupt inspectors corruption we have lots of rules how many do we live by Well, I think that one thing that natural disasters uh, do for us is uh, make us realize how impotent the state really is. If it does anything positive, that's by accident. By accident. Uh, well, storms yes. at sea convinced me that God is not gentle a long time ago. Yes, your famous statement, God is no buttercup. <laughs> that's gone round the world. Well, one of the things that uh, natural disasters do is, as you've indicated, uh, to humble people. After all, anyone who's been in an earthquake, when you're awakened to the earth shaking, the house shaking, things coming crashing down. Then you start shaking. <laughs> <laughs> we had a cat in the 71 earthquake who uh, could sense the tremors before they came and she would jump into the air and wave her four paws trying to fly to avoid being on the ground. <laughs> it was the funniest sight imaginable. She knew when it was coming, and she was full of eagerness to get up in the air and uh, escape from it. Well, having been brought up in born and raised in San Francisco, been through a few earthquakes, and it's interesting to watch, uh, particularly if you're in a theater or in a large group. I happened to have been in a classroom in 1957. How quiet normally boisterous and self-confident people get. That's true. During, do you remember the uh, so-called Cuban Missile Crisis? Yes. I was living in Greenwich Village, and Greenwich Village was crawling, swarming, I think is the proper word, with all kinds of infectious types, guitars, beards, and name it, and inch by inch, so you could hardly get through the crowd on the weekends, especially in the summer, and that occurred, I'm pretty sure, when the weather was good, and suddenly the streets were absolutely vacant. All those fabled hippies and leftists and guitarists and revolutionists and so forth vanished back into whatever cellars they came from. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't emerge until the crisis was over. It was quite a phenomenon. Well, I remember an engineer whose name I've forgotten who had uh, lived through the Long Beach earthquake of the early 30s quite a devastating one and he said uh, he saw people jump out of their bathtubs uh, run out of the house in their uh, nightgowns and pajamas uh, be on the street without a stitch in many cases uh, because their immediate reaction was to get out of the house a good and yes, and uh, he said, from there on, and he told me this during the uh, days immediately after the 71 uh, San Fernando Valley earthquake, he always put his trousers on a chair <laughs> near uh, his side of the bed so he could swing around and pull them on before he raced out. <laughs> like a fireman. Yes. <laughs> he said he saw too many people embarrassed. Yeah, I still and think it's very strange, though, that the press covering these catastrophes didn't find any decent behavior to report on when, as you say, it was all around them. It's almost as though they look for the worst, to report the worst. 
and the fact that they will not talk about what the churches do, as though there is something uh, unspeakable about the very presence of religious people. Uh, they did mention in one uh, newscast the Salvation Army's work and urged people in California to help the Salvation Army. Then they did a uh, picture in another one man in a community where everything was leveled who was uh, using whatever resource he had to help organize all the people. Well, then you're, you're saying that it isn't so. They didn't report, they did report the good. Uh, very little, however, very little. Mostly the local uh, Northern California TV stations. Yes. The local the, that, that cater more to Northern California. I see. Not the networks. Right. The networks, no. They just report on how many acres have burned. Right. How no, many houses are lost. The networks were pretty uh, insouciant about the whole thing. Yes. I'm still getting telephone calls from people in the East who want to know if I've survived. <laughs> well, an example of how the networks talk about natural disasters after the San Francisco quake or the Loma Prieta quake that uh, destroyed part of the Oakland Bay Bridge. Uh, I believe it was uh, Dan, was it Dan Rather, did the evening news for a couple days. Uh, Outdoors with the the bridge and right. the earthquake damage as his backdrop for his right. newscast. Right, he's one of those dumbest people accused him of being. He did that in the in the hurricane area too. He does that. He appears on the scene. Yeah, but outdoors. Outdoors. In case there's another earthquake, nothing will fall. Well, I don't blame <laughs> for that. If I was in his position, I'd be outdoors too. Well, I think before we. Uh, conclude we have about 12-13 minutes we ought to turn to a very important question as I indicated I feel that there are disasters ahead disasters in the economic sphere monetary and uh, job wise disasters in the governmental sphere disasters in the health sphere with epidemics plagues and so on disasters in the weather sphere more droughts, more floods, more everything. Now, how are people going to take these disasters that are coming? Well, if they come in bunches, as you indicate, and as we all fear, they'll get used to them. Uh, you know, as, as the war progresses, a lot of sentimentality vanishes. Uh, the first the first uh, casualties uh, create quite a little shock, but after a while, uh, they become taken for granted. And I remember being on a, a, a at Saipan somewhere. I think it was I went, went on a naval vessel one evening to see the movie because they had projectors and they had movies, and we didn't have any of those amenities at all. And they let us in. And it was a Boris, Boris Karloff movie. You know. <laughs> now, the fighting was still going on on the rest of the island and uh, so forth, but we watched the movie. And there was one point where Boris Karloff was driving a coach and there was a cadaver bumping against him and he was showing all kinds of fear. And the whole place broke into laughter because <laughs> there were bodies piled up mm -hmm. on the shore like cordwood. Mm -hmm. And... People get accustomed to disasters, they get accustomed to everything else. The human beings are very resilient, very strong, and capable of all kinds of diverse reactions. But uh, I, I, think, I think really the people will hold up to the troubles that come better than the government will. Douglas? Yeah, well, they're, they're proving that. They're, they, uh, uh, I was watching... Uh, this evening, a short piece of uh, PBS where they were interviewing the governor of Florida, and he's making some ridiculous forecasts, uh, such as he sees the recovery in three stages. First, the restoration of the primary 
infrastructure, the getting the water supply and the electricity and that turned on. Then there's the cleanup phase and then the rebuilding phase. And he was asked the question, well, do you think uh, this can all be accomplished by election? <laughs> by the election. And he said, well, uh, I think that uh, we can pretty well have the second phase completed by the election. Now, the election is what, uh, 60 days, 90 mm -hmm. days away. Uh, Hurricane Camille, I visited the Gulf Coast about a year after Hurricane Camille struck uh, Gulfport area, Mississippi. And I want to tell you, for 15 miles inland, it was still devastation. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I'm sure that there are areas down there that are still uh, destroyed and will probably be left that way and never rebuilt. And I'm sure that the same thing, no matter how much money the government pumps into this operation, it will take years. You just don't build 85,000 homes by the election. Mm -hmm. You don't put families back together or put communities back together by the election. So th there's a, uh, a lack of, of realism, a lack of uh, the appreciation for the magnitude of of uh, the disaster on the part of government and they're giving stupid reassurances that nobody with an IQ over 10 would accept. Yet these guys are on television tonight uh, giving these kinds of forecasts. Mm -hmm. Mark? Well, <clears throat> as far as economic disasters, uh, I, I wonder, there are a lot of people who have been raised on the politics of, of envy and when they suffer economic deprivation, I think they're going to have some pretty violent and ugly uh, emotions boiling in them. And uh, that could get kind of ugly. I, I, don't, I don't know. In, an, in a natural disaster, people will tend to look at something more realistic. When it's something like an economic disaster, as we are seeing even in a natural disaster, there's a tendency to place blame. And that can get pretty ugly. And to demand their rights, mm -hmm. whatever they decide their rights are. There's one interesting squib on uh, the news today where, uh, in an accusatory tone, the uh, reporter said that the government was totally ignoring the plight of the migratory workers in Florida. Now, anybody who reads the paper or has any awareness knows that uh, in Florida particularly probably 70% or more of those so-called migratory workers are illegal immigrants. They're people who have fled into Florida from Cuba or wherever, Haiti, wherever they come from. Nobody works at migratory farm labor unless that's the only job they can get. And many of them uh, uh, simply, they either don't speak uh, any English or uh, enough to get by, and uh, so they are trapped in those kinds of jobs. Well, the government can't help them if they don't know they're here. Yes. Uh, there's all kinds of pity for the illegal alien uh, rather than an application of law. Right now, we have a problem here in California because illegal aliens, uh, the court says, must not be charged out-of-state tuition fees. They must be charged the same as California residents, even though they are illegal and from another country as well as coming here from another state to go to one of the state universities. Now, the universities are challenging this because they're losing a lot of money on these illegal aliens. But uh, there's an attitude that uh, we can't do too much for the migrant worker and the illegal alien. And we are actually, at least in California, giving them all kinds of benefits, medical care, everything things they're not legally entitled to if we took the law seriously, if we deported them, as should be the case. Uh, I think, to get back to the question, what will happen, I think we will have some who will 
come to their senses. My favorite line is, of course, in poetry from James Russell Lowell, when he spoke of human beings as we who by shipwreck only find the shores of divine wisdom. I think we will have a great many people wake up who will stop living in terms of illusions and fiction, and it will be the making of them. On the other hand, I fear there will be some like the potato eaters in Vincent van Gogh's famous painting. Vincent van Gogh worked as a missionary among these very, very poor coal miners. They were working mined out coal mines. They were living meagerly. Uh, the picture Van Gogh painted of them shows the physical degeneration setting in from their meager diet. What people don't realize when they look at that photo or painting is that those potato eaters, that was all they had to eat, not much of that, refused to leave those worked out mines. The mine owners wanted to shut them down, but these workers whom they were ready to relocate insisted that their jobs had to continue. So the mine owners let them work it and sell what coal they could dig out of these mined-out mines. And so they sat there and degenerated physically rather than to say, well, we've got to move on. There is no coal here any longer. I think we have a lot of potato eaters in our society, and I think they're going to die. Because like Van Gogh's potatoes, potato eaters, they refuse to face reality. They're going to sit where they are, demand federal handouts, insist it's some kind of conspiracy from the haves against the have-nots, and they're going to pay the price of their blindness, their will to fiction, their refusal to face reality. They are going to die. But I believe that the disasters ahead will be the great opportunity to turn this country back to its foundations, to make it a more Christian country than ever before, to make it stronger than we have ever been. Because one of the healthiest things that anyone can have is a strong dose of reality. And that's what is coming. Dorothy and I attended a wedding in the latter part of the 60s. A young couple, newly married, magnificent home. A much better home than the parents on both sides had. They had everything. They both had very good jobs. Both had an expensive car in the driveway. And everything was on credit. The cars, the furnishings, the appliances, and the house. And those were the days when a uh, hundred down or so and you could move into a very expensive house. They were a charming couple. They professed to be good Christians. But Dorothy and I went home distressed because there was no sense of reality there. None. They were living in a dream world in which everything was going to get better and better, onward and upward. Well, in the days ahead, they'll come to grips with reality, I hope. But I think the disasters, on the whole, are going to be the making of this country 
and of a great many others. Well, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.